and welcome to episode 40 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This will be observations and the sky, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about my beginner astronomy class and some objects to observe in this coming week, and how has your week been, Shane? It's been pretty good. I was able to observe a couple nights, awesome. and uh, I came across yet another deal that I just couldn't pass up. <laughs> you, you are a bad, and, and we're not going to... We're not going to publicize my, I guess, me chastising you for, for, for putting me onto some of these auction sites. But, uh, <laughs> you know, my wife is very upset with you right now, but uh, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> That's fair. That's, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll bring a bottle of wine next time to, to pacify. <laughs> yeah. So you actually, and you, you sent me something very brief on this, and I'm, I'm extremely excited because you bought one thing that I've always wanted to get, but I'll, I'll let you tell the story. Yeah, so actually there's, there's maybe two separate things that I'll talk about. Uh, the first one I'll, uh, is what you just spoke of. And I was a successful winning bidder on a auction for a 35 millimeter uh, Meisuyama eyepiece. Um, so they're... Wow. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're not made anymore. Um, they're fairly desirable or collectible, I suppose. And um, there's a few reasons for that. Uh, number one, you know, and I've said this myself incorrectly on previous podcast episodes. Uh, and I've said that the 24 millimeter panoptic is the widest field of view that you can get in an inch and a quarter eyepiece. It, it is because you can actually get it. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Because you can actually buy one today if you want yeah. one. Yeah. If you However, want to get that one, yeah. Yeah. One. However, if you want the true, like the widest possible field of view in an inch and a quarter eyepiece, it's yeah. not the panoptic. No, it's the 35 millimeter Meisuyama. Now there's, there's a few clones out Pseudo. there. Pseudo Meisuyamas, they call them. Yes. yes. Like the, there's a beta, I think like Udoscopic or something like that. Yeah. There's, and then there's, uh, there's a Parks Optical and there's a old Celestron Ultima and there's yes. also the Orion Ultrascopic. Right, um, right, and there may be uh, there may have been an Antares uh, branded one as well. The um, Antares Elite Plossels. There you go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if they did a 35. Though. I don't. I don't think so. I think they topped out at 25, but uh, I could be wrong on that. And um, it has amazing reviews too. It, it like it has excellent eye relief, and it's it's sort of a strange looking eyepiece. Very strange. Yeah, it's not like anything else. It's kind of tall and narrow, but it, it's not like a straight cylinder. It's got some angles to it. Uh, it's, it's got 52 millimeter uh, field of view, or 52 millimeter, 52 degree field of view. Yeah, um, which but it's in my, 35 in my little, millimeter is yeah yeah good, which yeah. yeah yeah it's uh, which enables the wide field of view. So in my 76 millimeter DCU refractor, the panoptic, so this is at its native focal length of 570 millimeters. The panoptic gives me about 2.8 degree field. Mm -hmm. uh, the Meisuyama will give me something like 3.2 or 3.3. Like I'm almost getting another two thirds of a degree uh, out of that eyepiece. And like you said, the reviews talk about how like clear and, and, and contrasty and colors and like everything about it just sounds like a magical eyepiece. So I'm kind of excited to, yeah. to, for it to arrive. Yeah. Was this on that auction site you turned me on to? Yeah. 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 It's, it's, right, a, yeah. it's an addiction. <laughs> it, it really is. It really is. And I mean, we don't mention it because I, I don't know if we can, it's, it's like a, what is it like? It's like arbitrage or something like that. Like it's an intermediary of some sort. So not really sure the legalities and everything of it. Um, and even when I, you know, and just to kind of carry forward on that, that's not just us. I was talking to an individual this week on, on that telescope uh, that I've long sought. And, uh, and even that individual did the same thing when I was chatting at him. He just referred to it as, as essentially that auction site with a, an identifying character. <laughs> and so I was like, so I'm not sure what, what the story is on that. So I just kind of, I'm always a little bit, um, I always kind of back away from that one because we wouldn't want to get banned now, would we? <laughs> no, no, let's try not to. So that's so, exciting. Wow. Yeah. So any idea how long it will take to, uh, to get that? Well, I'm hoping this week or next week I should have it in my possession. So I'll, uh, I'll shoot you a text the day it comes. Yeah. And I'll let you know how it is. And yeah. 
yeah, I'm very excited. Uh, yeah, because uh, I've, I think, you know, there, there's other eyepieces I will buy before that one. Um, but that, I just, honestly, I just always wanted to get it. I just wanted to look through it. Like, mm-hmm. so now you have it and that's, that's great. I'm gradually collecting your eyepieces anyway. So yeah, this will exactly. go, go well with the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> so the the second deal um so maybe i'll even give a, a little bit of a backstory here so uh, a couple months ago i i had the the good luck of acquiring a five millimeter and a four millimeter tmb super monocentric uh oh, yeah. pieces yeah, those, yeah. Those, yeah and i've been blown away by them they're they're phenomenal they're any anything good you read about them i i you know i can support uh, they're they're fantastic um, so it made me want to acquire some of the other focal lengths. Um, it's a fairly large set. Uh, it goes from four millimeter up to 12 with one millimeter increments. And then from there, there's a 14, 16. Um, and then there's some really, really rare ones. There's an Isn't 18. There like an 18, yeah. I've always 18 I've, and a 21. I've heard a, like some pretty good stuff about the 18. But it's one of those things where sometimes I wonder if just because things are rare, are they better? Hard to Some, say. Yeah. Sometimes it's true. Yeah. Sometimes there, true. There's only 50 of the 18 millimeters made and 50 of the 21 millimeters made. Oh, wow. And on our unnamed auction site, uh, recently an 18 millimeter was uh, sold off and it, it went for around $1,000 Canadian. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I just don't know. I don't know if it's worth it for me uh, to spend that kind of money on a, yeah. on an 18 millimeter eyepiece. Like I, I have an 18 millimeter Pentex SMC ortho, which is fantastic. And I just, I don't think I could spring for the TMB, yeah. but anyway, I digress. Um, I put a, a want ad out on the Canadian used astronomy site, just saying, Hey, if there's anybody that has TMB super monos that they want to sell, please reach out to me. And I posted that probably a month ago. Nothing came my way. I honestly wasn't expecting anything to come my way. Uh, just because those eyepieces are so rare uh, and so desirable that nobody really wants to sell them. Yeah. And if they do, they probably have an astronomy buddy that's already spoken for them. So they never, yeah. they never hit the used websites. Yeah. So anyway, uh, last week, I think it was, out of the blue, I get an email from an individual in Canada uh, asking if I'm still looking for some of these eyepieces and indicated that he had bino sets of uh, the 10 millimeter, the eight millimeter, six millimeter. Um, and he also had the exceptionally rare TMB Barlow, 1.8 times Barlow. Oh, wow. And, um, did you get the Barlow? Of course. (laughs) I think that's, that's the one to get. Yeah. That's, yeah, you know, if you read about it, um, it's probably, I think a lot of people consider it the best Barlow ever made. So what, um, what is a Barlow exactly for, for those that aren't, aren't uh, so steeped in the geekdom of, of amateur astronomy? Yet? Right. It's, it's basically like a magnification multiplier. So a Barlow, you will insert it in between the eyepiece and the telescope. So either your diagonal or if you're running a Dobsonian, just right into the focuser. Uh, and then you'll put whatever eyepiece you want into the Barlow and it just doubles the power. So um, an 18 millimeter eyepiece put into a two times Barlow, that eyepiece will now behave like a nine millimeter eyepiece. Uh, and then on top of that, you also typically double the eye relief that that eyepiece has. So it, it's a, an effective way to double the amount of eyepieces in your collection. You know, if you had a, a 30 millimeter and a 20 millimeter and a 15 millimeter eyepiece, adding a two times Barlow, you're now basically adding like a 15 millimeter, uh, a 10 and a seven and a half millimeter eyepiece to your collection. Mm. So a lot of people use Barlows to round off uh, kind of holes without having to buy a whole bunch of extra eyepieces. Yeah. Is that a fair description? Yeah, that's that's pretty good. And generally, uh, and you and I have mentioned this before, generally we're not, we're not fans of of Barlow's. Um, but there are, there are a few exceptions. That would be one of the exceptions I, I believe, because I think if it was me, you know, that, that one has such a excellent reputation as perhaps the best Barlow that, uh, you could probably find an eyepiece that dialed in like an optimal power and then just let it live in that Barlow. 
would be yeah. probably yeah. what I would do, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a two element Barlow, which is interesting. I think most Barlows are three to four elements. Um, yeah. And some Vaseline say, in with some Vaseline in between them. Yeah. And, and some, a lot of people say online that like the glass is, is invisible. Like with the coatings, if you're just looking at it, you have mm-hmm. to get the light just right to even see the glass. Which, just put a fingerprint on it. Yeah. Yeah. Then you will, you'll see it every time. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, I had an outstanding uh, dialogue with the person that sold me all of this stuff. He's an older gentleman that, Uh, has had many, many years in the hobby of astronomy, but is starting to get to the point where, um, you know, some of his gear isn't getting used as much. So he's, you know, thinking about selling it. Um, So uh, I I bought, you know, one, I didn't go for the bino viewing pairs because I don't have a bino viewer, but uh, so the Barlow, the 10 millimeter, the eight and the six uh, should arrive Tuesday or Wednesday. The eight? Yeah, I was hoping you would say that because I'm actually running in the calculator some some math right now. So just give me because your focal length on the tack is five seventy, right? Yeah. Because well, that's that's going to really give you the eight millimeter in that Barlow is going to be a match made in heaven. Literally, I mean it, that is going to be the most deadly combination um, because 4.4. I point four. Yeah, four point four because that's going to give you one hundred and twenty eight power and. You know, in, in my opinion, um, somewhere between 120 and 130 power on that tack 76 is your optimal. Like that's going to give you absolutely the best view on the vast majority of nights. And an, that eight millimeter in that Barlow is because that, uh, will that extend the eye relief just a hair with it? It probably will. Just a it little should, bit. Yeah. yeah, it should. It should close to double the eye relief, I think. So. Well, or 1.8 times it, I think, is usually how that goes. Yeah, I mean, that's really gonna, that's really gonna give you a, a extremely uh, perfect, I think, power on the 76, and it's gonna make that eyepiece. Um, yeah, that's really gonna be something else, Shane. That is just yeah. awesome. Yeah, I can't wait for it. And maybe one note too, just about that Barlow. Um, the fact that it's a 1.8 times Barlow is just genius to me. Oh yeah. Um, that's, you know, that's the way to go. Yeah. Cause uh, a two times Barlow is very common, but a yeah. two times Barlow ends up replicating a lot of the focal lengths. Yeah. Whereas a 1.8 gets you in between just about every focal length. So it's, it's perfect. It's ideal. Yeah. I have a 1.6 and um, I've used, and it's just absolutely the most inexpensive one. And that's the Barlow I use the most because just like you said, that is a really good power. And also, um, it's a two-inch. And for whatever reason, I've really enjoyed having a, a two-inch Barlow. Um, I just find it it's a little bit easier to use. It sits in the diagonal a little bit better. Like, it feels a little bit more seated or something. Um, and then it was really inexpensive. I have an Interiors one. It's pretty old now. And they still make it. And uh, it's made by Glenn Spears, who's a really well-known, reputable um, maker of astronomical goods over in uh, Western Canada and Vancouver, I think is where he is or Vancouver Island. And uh, yeah, but I think 1.8 might just be maybe a little bit better, but yeah, my two, two times Barlow, I just don't, I should just sell it. Like I haven't, I've hardly ever used it. I used it once this year and you know, yeah. like if you're just getting into astronomy, I think a two times Barlow can be useful, but once you get enough eyepieces, like you said, they just duplicate them. Yeah, exactly. Um, an interesting thing, though, in my dialogue with this gentleman, we we talked, uh, we had a 45-minute FaceTime uh, session. And, Jeez, and should have had him do a podcast. Probably, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and we had multiple email exchanges. Uh, yeah. Very long-winded. Um, he was telling me of an interesting observing technique and I'll, I'll, I'll walk you through it here. And I'm curious if you've ever heard of this before. Uh, uh, this sounds like, you know, how to catch big fish. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> so what he said he likes to do, and he, uh, he did this in the, uh, the 2003 Mars opposition. Um, and, and pretty much any time he was trying to do critical planetary observing. Okay. First of all, what he said was he would dedicate three to four hours to the session. Okay. He would just resign himself to the fact that he's going to be at the telescope for a long time. Yeah. 
what he would do is start off and spend the first hour or two with exceptionally high magnifications, whether or not the seeing would support it. Um, and the seeing typically would get better, you know, as the evening air cooled and, you know, all of the surrounding things stopped radiating heat. And he said, then when the seeing would steady, he'd back off the magnification a little bit. And his eye was now able to see far more detail. Okay. And he said when he would do this, even if he was naked eye observing the moon, after having observed at high power for an hour or two through the telescope, he said even the naked eye moon looked completely different to him. Okay. Because the eye gets engaged in a different way and starts to perceive detail and light uh, more acutely. And I thought, wow, I've never heard of this before. And I'm curious if you have. So I have, I have not, but um, just I, I give a little bit of background on human perception. And uh, that makes sense. And, and although I had never heard of that before, strangely enough, um, the way that I will observe planets, I mean, I guess I've just never elucidated it or, or passed it along. But for example, last night, what I, what I was doing, and now I wasn't, I guess I was out for, for a good piece of time. I'm not sure if my, my length of time matches uh, what he was saying. Um, but but cer certainly the more and longer you observe, the more you will see. Um, so there definitely is uh, a lot of, uh, a lot to that. Um, but uh, yeah, I ran about 125 power. And, and what I would do is I, is I uh, the past several sessions, is I would observe at 125 for a bit, um, like not that long, maybe 15 minutes or 20 minutes, and then drop down to 85 power and then do my sketches. And then, Interesting. And then the same with the uh, 100 millimeter in the past few sessions, I would, I would do 150 and then down to uh, 105. Um, yeah, I, it, yeah, that, that, that holds water to me. That seems to make sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm going yeah. to give it a try. Um, and one thing, though, that definitely I think is, you know, I think every planetary observer would agree is you do have to spend time at the eyepiece just time at the, at the planet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's yeah. critical. You can't just take a look at Jupiter for five minutes or so. No. Uh, you really need to spend some time there because the seeing comes and goes. But yeah. your eye also gets used to being a, like to start teasing out the finer detail and noticing yeah. some of the nuances. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right, right off the top, if you know, although, although he's, he's put a little bit more thought and, uh, and context into it, but um, two of the main takeaways from that are, you know, it like, I don't, I don't feel like it's that much of a secret to step back and say, Hey, if you really want to see stuff on a planet like Mars, what you do is you set up and you do like a three hour session at high power and you wait for moments of still seeing, I'd say, yep. Like that's, that's how you do it. Like pretty much, um, what, what he adds about uh, going from higher power to lower power. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that probably uh, does hold some water as well because you know if you're kind of waiting for those still moments and you're very focused at at the eyepiece and uh you know maybe taking some breaks and going back and forth i, I don't think you, you do sit there with your eye glued to the eyepiece for for that period of time but uh, maybe he does um yeah i think that would that would probably uh, work because then once you drop down the seeing is going to look like it's improved remarkably yes, um, yes. you know and and you're not going to be having having to wait as long. That that's what I noticed as well. So yeah. Well, and after yeah. having ha having had this conversation with him, I thought back upon many of my observing sessions, and I do the opposite, right? I start with a very low power, um, and then work my way up as much as the seeing allows, and then I usually just sit at that focal length or that power. Um, but then when I spend some time you know, at a higher power, usually later on in the night, for whatever reason, I'll put a lower power eyepiece in probably because I'm finding other objects. But if I go back to say Jupiter, um, it does seem like the lower power eyepiece um, is just showing me a little bit more, uh, you know, and I don't know if that's because of just getting my eye sort of adapted or accustomed to planetary observing for the session or what, mm. or maybe it's just, you know, wishful thinking too. But. Well, I've also, and I read this recently, I wish I could kind of dig it up. I think it was um, Bill 
Palamoni, or I'm probably saying his last name wrong, uh, from Claudia Knights. But he had written something or somebody in a thread with him, and they were discussing kind of like these these optimal powers of sort of being around that that roughly one to to point eight millimeter exit people kind of thing, which you know in my in my hundred millimeter it would be right around that uh, hundred to hundred and twenty power range. Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, it it, it does seem like other other people have have mentioned this as well. They didn't mention that process of starting high and then and then dropping low. But you know, there, there's a lot of different techniques, and certainly that uh, that is something uh, definitely to try. And you know, often what I'll do is I'll just I'll just start, and as as you know, the telescope cools, you just like to give it at least fifteen or twenty minutes for these little refractors, even which seem should be cooling almost right away. But uh, I'll give them that long, and then. I'll kind of run up as high as I can go with them, uh, sort of that two times per uh, millimeter of aperture, and then kind of dial it back, um, you know, over over the course of uh, twenty or so minutes, like I said. So, so yeah, I mean, the, you know, that that's a that really good conversation on that. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, um, and it 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 almost opens up another topic of of approaches to planetary observing because, like you said, there's there's definitely a few different ways you can do it. This mm. is one of them. Um, we shared our ways, and then I think in a email exchange, um, I shared a, a comment in a cloudy night's thread about straight through viewing in a refractor, which is not common today, but was common hundreds of years ago. <laughs> so. I, I hear the Massiama only, only works straight through. Oh, okay. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> All right. So I think you and I both did some observing this week too. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, I, I had kind of made up two sets of show notes because uh, I, I actually hadn't done any observing until last night. So um, you and I are both off for, for a few days, coincidentally enough during the new moon period. And um sort of, you know, ramping up to that, I was, I was maybe doing a little bit of work in the evening, just like 15 minutes here and an hour there kind of thing. And I was on call and that kind of stuff. So I didn't really get that much astronomy in until last night. I'm also teaching my uh, August astronomy uh, four-week class, which I'm now uh, halfway through at our, at our local university outreach center. Um, and just prepping for that. Um, which I put a fair bit of time into and I, I enjoy doing and, and uh, you know, it's been really great to uh, have so many students, you know, we're, we're up, I think there's 22 or 23 students in the class. And wow. I, I was shocked this week at how many people actually went out and observed, like, you know, I've been teaching this class now more or less like in one form or another, but pretty consistently uh, three times a year and uh, sort of one in, in each of the main seasons. And uh, Typically, you know, I go in and I kind of give people the rigmarole and a, a lot of people typically when I'm in all these classes up to this point have been in person. And I find that probably half or maybe more are more uh, individuals interested, maybe in the astrophysics is kind of the way to put it. And, uh, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But I mean, Shane, you know, I'm not an astrophysicist. And I don't know my tangent from a cosine. You know? <laughs> Boy, yeah, I'm sort of, I'm not like, you know, I say that I'm math challenged, but my wife says that I'm, I am not math challenged. I'm, I'm probably decent at math. I'm probably like, I'm actually probably average is what it comes down to. I know some people are really good. Some people just, it's a blank wall. Um, I'm probably average um, at math and I should not be teaching it at all to anybody whatsoever. <laughs> Um, but with the, with the COVID-19 restrictions and the move to Zoom, um, what's happened is, and, and what had happened in my, in my in-person classes is they had gone from like 40 or 50 people and me teaching a more generalized curriculum on, on astronomy um, with maybe, maybe like from a quarter to a third to a half gradually uh, increasing over, over time to pretty much the whole session being about visual astronomy, which is what I know and what I enjoy talking about. And a, and a move away from like black holes and astrophysics stuff, which I really don't know anything about and, and was really taking up way too much time and energy for me to, uh, you know, learn and then build a story around in order to, to give an entertaining class. And, and I, I just really didn't know it as well either. So 
uh, the classes, the, the numbers of the, in the classes had decreased, but the, but the interest level in the individuals who were attending uh, had gone way up so that, you know, I was getting maybe eight to 12 people and lots of uh, those individuals were, were going out, you know, probably half or so were going out and, and doing astronomy or whatever. But this time it seemed like, wow, like out of the 22 or 23 people, I think like 17 or 18 of them had gone out and actually done some astronomy. Oh, that's so, awesome. So bigger class and, and higher numbers of people doing it. Um, and if, and if they hadn't, you know, and it doesn't necessarily work for everybody, um, every week, um, they had gone and like bought, uh, Terrence Dickinson's night watch, which is, uh, our recommended, uh, beginner guide to, to the nighttime sky. And I think serves, serves anybody pretty well, though it's, it's, uh, North American focused or, or maybe Northern hemispheric focused, um, is a great beginner's guide. And, and a few other people had gone and bought binoculars or dug their binoculars out and, one person gave us really an, an incredible description of, of uh, what they had seen uh, on craters in the moon and stuff like that. So, so that was really, really cool, really cool. So, so I've got two more sessions left and then, uh, and then uh, a month off and then I'll do an, an eight week session, but I'm almost thinking I might want to just make these. Um, typically I do three times a year, uh, fall, winter, spring, and I'm thinking I may want to take them to four or five weeks a year and actually do the proper seasons. And I, oh, I yeah, think, yeah, because yeah, I was, you know, when they came to me and said, they really what they wanted, they wanted me to test something. And then the, the testing isn't happening, I think, because we got so many people in the class, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But they were thinking that, oh, I'm, and I'm fairly tech savvy. And I do work at the university as well on, on technical uh, research. And so I think they were thinking, well, we'll get Krista tested out, right? And blah, blah, blah. And then, well, we can't really subject, you know, two dozen people to, to some testing. Um, uh, so so we, aren't, we aren't doing the testing, but it's been great to have uh, so many attendees. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like the, the option of having just four weeks. And I was surprised how many people wanted to come and do online sessions in, uh, uh, in August. I think it's it's almost like a perfect month with the Perseids and planets and still warm weather. So I'm almost thinking I might do like an August session, like an October session or something like that. While it's still warm enough for people to go out, then maybe like uh, like a February session and then maybe like a May session and a you know I'd like just do four four by fours, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I, th I think a barrier for some people is just the time it takes to, you know, put on a jacket, get in your vehicle and drive to the location for one of these types of events, you yeah. know, because there's 20 minutes and then you have the same amount of time on the back end when you go home. Yeah. Whereas if you could sit on the couch and, you know, start the dishwasher and uh, maybe even sip on a beer, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a pretty nice way to spend an evening. Yeah. Um, yeah, it really is. And boy, you know, like the one reason, one of the main reasons why I do this is, and you, you and I've been involved and, and you come and help me out in the classes on a frequent occasion, maybe, maybe asked too frequently, but, uh, but you, you do have some different expertise than I do for sure. Yeah. Um, I it. yeah and it's a lot of fun. And the, one of the main reasons why I like doing these, and you and I've done tons of outreach in the past to, together and, and separately uh, for astronomy clubs and on our own and, all kinds of stuff. Um, but one of the challenges with, with learning the nighttime skies, um, in my opinion anyway, is you go to like an astronomy club session and then kind of like, uh, that's it, you know? Um, and and you kind of never hear or see from them for another long period of time. And uh, it becomes really challenging to actually learn the night sky when that's the case. You know, so, so maybe there's like a presentation that you go to and then you go out and you're trying to see stuff, but by the time another presentation or meeting or whatever comes around, it's a, it's a month or more, or maybe several months later, by the time your schedule lines up, you're just out of luck figuring out if what you saw was what you thought it was or asking that question. Um, it becomes pretty disjointed, um, you know, o over the long period. But for example, when, when I do these on a weekly basis, at least even for a short period of time, people come back the next week and boy, I bet you like 25 or so percent of the people have a question. They are just really eager to get answered. Like, was that, what was that bright star? 
was that bright star planet or you know what I'm, what am i seeing i noticed this and so you can rapidly develop uh, people's observational skills of the nighttime sky and then they they really feel like they're uh, like what they're seeing is is what they're seeing like you really build in the knowledge because it's often the question i I always feel a little bit bad. I do get the odd person who's joined the class in the past. None, none of these individuals appear to be like this. But, you know, after my first session, somebody will sort of sit back and start and say, but how do you know that's what it is kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you kind of have to trust me because I've got, you know, almost 25 years experience doing this <laughs> and the science that you know, globally is probably spent, you know, many hundreds of billions of dollars on has, it's not a conspiracy. So uh, (laughs) you kind of get that sense that maybe they're like, well, maybe it's just, you know, uh, what did they used to say? It was like lamps in the sky or fires in the sky. It was the old uh, adage for, uh, and and perhaps even incorrectly for the, uh, some of the uh, early, uh, perhaps peoples around the world, but uh, you know, uh, you know, there's just sort of a lot of mythology in in and around that. We're I think trying to gradually move away from, from the actual mythology to enjoying it as mythology alone. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's been, that's been uh, really refreshing uh, to go through with, with all these folks and to see lots of engagement there. But uh, like you said, I also did get out and uh, do some observing, actually get a sketch um, just didn't have time. I'll, I'll do a photo of it once, uh, once we get done here this morning and, uh, and send it to you. But I did a, a sketch of Mars and I did a sketch of Venus. Um, and yeah, it was sort of in a way kind of unremarkable, in a way quite remarkable. Like uh, I don't think there's anything too spectacular about Mars right now, though it, it is getting bigger. Like, like I feel like I'm noticing almost as much detail through the 60 millimeter as I was like even just a week or 10 days ago through the hundred millimeter. It is really starting to get big. Did you stay up and observe it last night? Cause it's now getting up there after midnight. No, I didn't. Uh, I went to bed a little early last night. It yeah. was a long day and did some uh, housework and uh, yep. just not a, no energy for observing last night. Yeah, no, fa- fair enough. Um, but, but with, uh, with the time off uh, that we have this week, it, it, you know, I stayed up, I, I didn't intend to stay up till midnight. I'll, I'll explain that in a minute, but um, I stayed up till midnight observing. Um, and I mostly observed sort of like 50% observing, 50% messing around with the new mound. But uh, by the time I was going to bed at midnight, uh, Mars was actually just about high enough to begin observing. Uh, and then I decided that what I would do, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, I was on the fence is I was thinking, well, I could stay up and observe it, but the sky didn't seem to be the sky was pretty stable, but it was still a little bit low. Maybe it was 15 degrees up ish. And I knew it was going to be almost overhead at about, uh, at about 4am or whatever. So I decided I'll, I'll just get up again. So I get up at, uh, at four and did an hour. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So if I'm a little bit tired and rambly, this is, <laughs> this is why, this is why, cause we're, we're actually going out and, you know, staying up all night sometimes and then doing the podcast. So, uh, so yeah, and uh, it was well worth it. And I knew that Venus would be coming up, and it was neat because in the in the early evening, just after it got dark, I did a session on. I looked at Jupiter, not as long as I would have liked, um, and then I looked at Saturn for for quite a long period of time, uh, and then I knew that uh, well, I saw Mars rising, and I, I knew it would, and then I knew that Venus would be up pretty high in the morning sky too. And it's just I think it's just at or just past Eastern, uh, or sorry, greatest. Uh, Western elongation here. So it's going to be really nice and high. And then the moon was, was nearby. It was just incredibly beautiful this morning and, and the conditions were, were pretty excellent. So, uh, so that, that was nice. And like I said, I did a couple sketches, but um, nothing really struck me at first. And then, you know, it's one of those things, this is where sketching really comes into play as, as you know, Shane, have you, have you tried sketching the planets much yet? Never, not yet. No. Um, was that this is the, the part in the phase and I forget what it's called. I think it's part of that, uh, Schroeder effect or Seelinger effect or whatever it is, where the, um, the terminator, and this is the, the area of, um, well, any planet really, but, but most noticeable on the moon and, and, uh, Venus 
where the light and the dark areas match or meet up. And Venus is close to being half illuminated right now. Okay. Okay. And, and what I noticed was, and, and this is really a strange thing to describe is the crescent starts and then uh, sort of on the opposite end. So if we're looking to the top part of my telescope, south is up and then on, on the Northern part, it also, it also begins or ends, but then it's like a vertical line connecting those two little straight arcs. And it's the strangest looking thing. So I did a, I did a pretty good sketch of that, but until I did the sketch, like I was looking at it and looking at it, I was like, what is like, it was really hard to get my eye on it today for some reason. And the conditions were good. My eye was a little bleary, but you know, I was kind of like rubbing the sleep out of it quite literally. But, uh, and once I got my eye and the scope working with some some good power, I was like, you know, it's it's that weird straight line effect where there's like a point in uh, in in when Venus is angled a certain way to the Earth and the Sun, where it's very difficult to um, determine that half illuminated point, and and you'll almost never see Venus as half illuminated to the eye anyway you'll always see kind of these little cusps or little little parts of the crescent on the on the north and the south or one or the other and then you'll uh you'll see them just connected with a straight line um which is a very weird observation so so anyway and then i saw some dark shading in, in the middle of that and i actually did a fairly decent sketch of venus Sketch of Mars, not as good, and it is like only a 60 millimeter scope, but I felt I could see the polar cap a little easier and some of the darker features towards the north. And I almost thought I could see maybe the northern polar cap this morning. I'm, I'm, I didn't draw it, I was really unsure about it, but, uh, but anyway, so, so I had some good views. Uh, did you take a look at, at Jupiter or Saturn? Yeah, yeah, I was out Monday night, so August 10th and August the 11th. Um, mostly Jupiter. I did take a quick look at Saturn, but when I'm observing on a work night, Saturn is still a little bit low, uh, you know, before my bedtime. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, the seeing just isn't great for Saturn uh, at that point, so I've mm. entirely been focused on Jupiter. Um, so Monday night was the first time I also used that Sky T mount and it's fantastic. It is so good. So smooth. The slow motion controls are fantastic. It, it really worked well. Nice. Um, I did try to look at Antares. Uh, did we talk about this? I feel like you and I have had a conversation about this, but maybe not. About the companion? Uh, yeah. Looking at it. Yeah. Cause this was in the, uh, uh, deep dive we did. Right, right. Um, so anyway, I tried to see if I could uh, get the companion and, and it just wasn't possible. Um, uh, you know, I think I got a little bit of the green occasionally as it was flaring like crazy because it's so low in, in the sky here where we live. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, it was a, it was kind of a standard night of observing, nothing too spectacular. Uh, Tuesday night though, I used my Teleview Genesis, um, on the Sky T-mount. So okay. the Genesis is a pretty heavy telescope, you know, all said and done, it's probably 10 or 12 pounds. And then that might even be before the diagonal and eyepiece. Yeah. Um, but rock solid on that Sky T-mount. Um, and you know, and I've used, I've used a lot of alt as mounts mm -hmm. in my, days of astronomy. Um, if you name it, there's a good chance I've used it, except for some of the higher end ones, like uh, the DMs, like the disc mounts and the half hitches. But um, this is the best Alt-Az mount I've ever used, mm. you know, in terms of sturdiness, smoothness, uh, it's fantastic. Um, so that night looking at uh, Jupiter, I think it was that night or was it the Monday? Hmm. The, the four Galilean moons were equally spread out on, on the left and the right. So there was two on the left, two on the right. They were all uh, equally uh, spaced. But what was interesting was the two that were closer to Jupiter, like were kind of higher up, like they weren't on the same plane mm. as the other Galilean moons. 
And it sort of gave it like a three-dimensional look. Like those two moons were on the backside, you know, oh, wow. of Jupiter. Um, I don't know yeah. if that's the case or not. That That's the only real explanation I would yeah, have. Or maybe they were right. on the front side. I, I yeah. don't know. But it, it, was a, it was quite pretty, actually. Cool. Um, and I think I'm just taking a look through my notes. I think the Great Red Spot was out that night. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was, uh, that was an interesting observation. And then I was, uh, I was messing around. So I have a 24 millimeter panoptic and, uh, I think you probably remember a long time ago, I used to have the Vixen LVWs in my mm-hmm. collection. I've gotten rid of all of them, but I, I still have a 22 millimeter Vixen LVW. And I thought, you know, I don't need that and the panoptic. So I should really decide which one I want to keep. Um, so that night I was going back and forth between the panoptic and the LVW up in Cygnus. Yeah. Cause um, one gives you like, I think the panoptic gives you just under 24 power and then the uh, 22 millimeter give you just under 26 power in your tax. So it's pretty, pretty yeah. hair splitting. I don't know that you could see two power difference. Maybe you can, I don't know. No, no. The, the thing though that I read and confirmed was that the LVW just seems to be uh, like, it just has a little bit less light uh, throughput. Yeah, it just seems a little darker, and uh, I'll be selling it. It's a fantastic eyepiece, and for somebody who wears glasses, it's one of the most comfortable eyepieces that you can observe with. Yeah, um, you know, and it also has that benefit of you know it's an inch and a quarter eyepiece, but it also has like a two inch barrel on it, so you can put it into a, a two inch diagonal quite easily. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what was funny was uh, so I'm I'm panning around in Cygnus, uh, right around Saturn, the kind of the middle star of the cross and stumbled across a, an open cluster. I had no idea what it was, but it was apparent that I was looking at a, uh, an open cluster. Isn't and, like M29 there or something? Yeah, it's up there, um, right in that area. So what it turned out to be was NGC 6910. Um, and there's a few, there's like four or five really somewhat faint stars, which provided a good test for these two eyepieces. But <laughs> what was funny about this was, so again, I didn't know which cluster I was looking at because I, I had, didn't have any star charts out with me. I just wanted to pan an area that was rich with stars and, and uh, Cygnus runs you know, right through the Milky Way. And uh, that's a great place to, to see a lot of stars. Okay, yeah, I'm looking at it now. 6910, okay, I get you. Yeah, but um, when I came inside to identify what cluster I was looking at, I, I fired up my planetarium software and I was looking to the right of Saturn because that's where it appeared optically to me. And I'm, I'm looking and there's no open clusters that appeared, oh, yeah. that, you know, that looked like what I saw. Yeah. And then it took me probably five or 10 minutes and reversed, being yeah. a, a little bit tired that yeah. the, the view in a refractor's left, right reversed. Yeah. So it was actually to the left of Saturn on the star chart yeah. to the right of Saturn when I was, was looking at it through the telescope. So yeah. I, thought, I thought it was kind of amusing, but also maybe worth mentioning because I don't know if we've ever actually mentioned that on the podcast that yeah. uh, depending on the telescope you're using, uh, the view is not is not uh what's the right way to put correctly it? oriented yeah 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 there you go yeah yeah that's yeah that that happens to me all the time yeah and some people they've even go and gone and bought like uh, like big prism diagonals to give them a correctly oriented view but i tried that and i found it so boy that was more confusing actually <laughs> Yeah. On one of my old Dobsonians, I had a racy finder. So right angle, correct image finder. So it, it made everything the way your eye would see it. And then to go from that to the eyepiece was like, I got used to it, but it was like almost dizzying. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah, it's really, it's really strange because you get, we get so used to the, uh, like moving the kind of opposite way. Like it just, you know, after decades, it just becomes second nature. And yeah. I've even read some stuff where I, mean, I haven't read it. It's just, I studied it in school with human perception that I've studied. And, you know, you will, you can, the eye can actually reverse the images with the brain to be correctly oriented. And I've even seen this sometimes. So you can actually experience this from time to time as well. Um, this can mm-hmm. happen. Uh, so 
when you then when you go to the correct correctly oriented view and you think oh this is going to be super easy now um, and it's not it's, it's because your your brain and eye have have uh, have compensated for it yeah. and it's not what it's expecting so yeah cool well, yeah that was my week of observing um as you mentioned we're both off this week so the for the, our weather forecast looks pretty darn good i think you and i will be able to get out and hopefully take in some darker skies outside of the city yeah and i got a chance to to use the new skywatcher az gti last oh, night right. yeah yeah and this was uh one of the more interesting astronomical experiences i've had so the conditions yesterday afternoon were not looking amazing. It was actually looking kind of like it was going to be another wash it the night before I'd been emailing you at like 4am kind of humorous um, products to purchase like hammocks in tents. And you actually thought you might be able to use such a thing. And I thought it'd be great that if I had all the money in the world, I would buy a few of these and create a hammock bunk bed. But uh, you thought that might even be practical. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just kind of ribbing you a bit, but, um, but yeah, it was just terrible conditions and I, I hardly even worth mentioning that sort of late Friday, early Saturday, I, I did see the pairing of Venus and the moon, but it, it was through such thick cloud that, um, boy, it, it was, I didn't even go outside. I just looked at it through the window, sat down, thought I'd check back in 10 minutes to see if maybe it had cleared off a little. And when I checked back 10 minutes later, it was completely you couldn't even see the moon or Venus at all whatsoever, even through the clouds. So, but um, yesterday and last night wasn't really supposed to be much different, but it ended up being very different. Once the sun went down, it just totally cleared off and it was really good. Um, but I didn't really have that much of a plan. I kind of had wished that we had maybe made plans to, uh, to go out somewhere. But what I ended up doing was um, setting up the AZ GTI, which I got, uh, just over a week ago, and uh, or about a week ago, I think I got it on Friday before two days ago. I'm getting confused because I stayed up all night. Um, and uh, and so this is an Altaz mount, but it's got the motors in it and has it has go to capability, but primarily uh, I really wanted it for and want it for tracking the planets so that I can put um, my refractor on one of the planets and just let it, let it track. So uh, I read the manual, which just says download the software. That's all it says. And I was like, man, this is not enough detail for me because <laughs> uh, I should, should note that I'm not necessarily a fan of these go-to mounts at all whatsoever. And in the past, like you and I have tried setting them up and they can be very frustrating. Yes. Um, but this one, I took it out, put it on my own tripod, and that's one of the cool things with the AZ GTI is that it it has just a standard tripod thread. It's not some sort of weird custom thread or a thread that only works with um, like certain tripods that maybe just Skywatch makes. No, it works with any photographic tripod, um, and you can buy many photographic tripod heads, and it's, it's super adaptable. Um, so I put it on my old Manfrotto tripod and, uh, downloaded the software and hit a line and said manually center Jupiter, whatever star I chose. And so I did that. And I, I tried to do the alignment and it didn't seem to be working. So I went inside and, um, I, I was reading, it was like, well, this is really for the go-to and really, I just wanted it to track. So I thought, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to just try to get the track. So I went out. Are you still there? Can you hear me? Because yep, yep, yep. My connection's saying it's unstable for whatever reason. Um, and then uh, I went out again. I I thought I'll just kind of put it on something, see if I just tried it. I wasn't really sure. And then thought, you know what? I think it's I think it's working. I just think it's <laughs> tracking on Jupiter. I didn't really, as far as I know, really have to do anything. So I thought, well, I'll just like set my timer and put a higher power eyepiece in because in five minutes, it should definitely be out of the field of view. And, and I went back in five or six minutes and it was, still, it was just about in the center. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So it worked just exactly as I wanted it to right out of the box without me uh, really hardly having to do uh, anything. Um, so that was pretty exciting. Um, 
I try to get the go-to to work, but I, I think you have to do like a, a, a north alignment and a leveling and some other things. And yeah. thought, okay, well, like that would be great, but really I just want to point it at Jupiter or Saturn or Mars or Venus and just get it to track. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what I did last night. Now there's, there's a couple, there's, I guess, three things that are, are a bit of a, caveat with this mount so it's kind of really strange i guess it's it's the added cost of everything and i think that they know you know these i think these telescope companies they know what they're doing they know how to sell the stuff right and what they're doing is they're selling more or less affordable i don't want to say entry level i think this is sort of like intermediate level uh equipment maybe anyway and i'd agree with that and uh you know, they're trying to hit these certain price points. But because of that, there are some, some limitations. So limitation, the first, is that any go-to mount is going to require some significant battery power and or a power cable or, you know, a power pack or whatever. Um, and so this doesn't come with any of that. So, so you can go and buy a set of batteries. Now, on the Skywatcher website, it indicated that there was a power cable that you can get for, I think, 50 or 60 bucks. You can buy one online on Amazon or whatever for about half the cost. And I'm like a little bit like concerned about doing that because I don't want to fry this like $500 mount because I decided to save $20 on the power cable, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'll order the original part. So we did that in June still don't have it. And so that's why I know. So that and everything is, you know, delayed with all this COVID business. And, and the reason why things are delayed is like things that are important to ship, like food and medical supplies and stuff that people really need and not power cables for Chris's telescope. Um, take the priority. I'm, I'm fine with that, but it's just like an added kind of thing. And no matter when you, you get it, you, you, you know, you're going to have to um, kind of go through this, even in, in the best of times, uh, it's going to be a long turnaround because it's treated like some sort of weird custom part that's not readily available, uh, mm. even, even in the best of times. So I, I think I have a solution for you, my friend. Oh, really? Yes. Cause do you need a power supply as well? Like a portable battery? Yeah, I, I would take one. Yeah. What do you so, have? Well, I, I don't have it, but that oh. website of the uh, that astronomy business that's kind of liquidating all of their inventory because they're oh yeah close the business they have a celestron power tank lithium which is exactly what i have and i use that to power my gm okay. mount it's a fantastic battery okay and i'm quite sure that a cable comes with that and like that power cable it's it's all generic like it's all standard across all of these things so Okay. All right. Um, and and will... it's it's an outstanding price. So I'll send you a link offline. Yeah, send me or... send me the link. Yeah. You've you cost me more money. But that's okay. Yeah, yeah I like um, spending your money. <laughs> I do I do need to get something. And I, I do want to get the power the power cable anyway. Um because at some point in the future, if I do have a more permanent location that happens to have power, I just want to be able to plug it in. And, uh, and just have like pure 100% clean power without worry about battery charging and whatever. So what I did, and this, this is um, something that I found out working in, uh, in the grain business. I worked for uh, an internet of things company. So IOT, people can Google that and try to figure it out. I, I worked at a company for over two years that was IOT and still not sure exactly what it is. Um, and I was working on the technical side of it. It's, it's sort of like the, the remote everything has a computer in it um, world that we're, we're slowly entering into. But one of the challenges in, in that world is powering remote devices out in, out in the farmer's fields. And um, the first thing that, that you learn in the IOT business is that there's only one battery that works really well for double A's and, uh, and they really don't cost that much more than other batteries. In fact, they're sort of like, medium priced and that's the uh, energizer lithium ion double a battery it's silver with blue writing on it mm-hmm. and it is absolutely the best double a battery sounds like you already knew this well yeah yeah I've, I've used those in when we used to use the green laser pointers i used oh yeah those exact batteries and 
Um, when, when it comes to using batteries to power your uh, mounts and things, um, I, you know, I see some people using like those, you can buy those power banks that charge cell phones and, you know, they have USB yep. ports on them and people use them to power their mounts. Oh, really? Those, those can be really dangerous. Um, like they oh. have uh, lithium batteries, but lithium, if it gets any moisture in there, it can become like a very, a real dangerous thing when you go to charge it. And, uh, what's nice about the Celestron battery is that like, it's made to be outdoors. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're outdoors powering them out, it's going to get humid at some point, like the dew yeah. gets in there. Um, so when the reason I have that is because I don't have power in my observatory and I was researching all kinds of alternative power options and I was going to get one of those. <laughs> you didn't go with lines. like uh, giant crystals or pyramid structures or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. Oh, not but, that uh, kind of alternative power. No, no different, different <laughs> uh, electrical power. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So the, when, when it comes to, uh, yeah. the, you know, powering them out, it's good to, um, you know, stick with like a brand name or, or something yeah. related to astronomy because, you know, you, yeah. you don't want the thing to blow up or start on fire. Right. Well, if you're, if anybody's looking for double A's and they want the ones that last the most and, and that are, um, so they are the only batteries that are rated down to minus 40. Yeah. These, these lithium yeah. energizer double A's. They like we would put them in devices and put them in a field and some of them would last two years. Oh wow. So I'm kind of curious to see how long them so I, I didn't feel too bad. So I bought them, I think they were $16 shipped to my door. And you can't buy them everywhere. In fact, you couldn't buy them on Amazon when I last checked, but when I checked this past week, they were there. So I bought a set of eight. They ran $16. I think I said shipped to my door, maybe less a few cents or plus a few cents or something. Um, so that's not too bad. But uh, some people say that the double A's, you only get uh, six hours out of them. And just in the testing of the mount and the observing that I did last night, I did two hours in the evening. And I decided not to use that mount in, in the morning that I would, I want to wait until I got some of the other stuff I have coming in order to do some more testing with it. So it's kind of back on, back on the shelf again. Um, because one of the things it says in the manual is that you're not really supposed to slew it in the azimuth. And it's a little bit confusing because it will say to manually point it at Jupiter. So if I say, all right, I want to point it at Jupiter and it will say, it will do this little dance. Like it will kind of slew to a random part in the sky and then it will say, okay, now point it at Jupiter. So I don't know what it's doing, but it's, it's got something that it's doing. And then I point it at Jupiter and Saturn or whatever. And it seems to track uh, perfectly almost. And so I'm super happy with that, but I kind of want to be able to slew it around the sky a little bit better. So um, there's there's a hack that I found online and it's not that expensive. But again, it's like, I kind of wish they had properly kitted out the mount with something like this is um, you can put what's called a PB70 base on it. And this is just an azimuth pan base with a big knob that you can use in the winter. And you back that off and you can do all the panning around an azimuth you want without engaging oh. the... Uh, the the gears and that that are inside the device because probably at you know i was doing this at like 20 degrees celsius it's like a perfect evening it's pretty still i put my lightest telescope on it and yeah so i kind of had to move it a little bit in the azimuth but i i don't know how else you would do it like i was using the hand paddle a bit on the uh on the cell phone because you download the software but man uh so this panning in the azimuth is is a bit of a problem i think um but the solution to that is it's $55 American plus uh, some shipping and that. So that's going to be a week coming from PB photo down in or PNH photo down in uh, New York or somewhere. So they're going to ship that up. Who knows how long it will actually take to get here. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, so that's the azimuth issue. Um, easily solved. Just got to buy a part. So it's like another $75 Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> Then the, the other thing is I, I thought, well, I should be able to download that software onto my Chromebook and use that because that will take Android um, apps. And every Android app I've ever used on the Chromebook works perfectly or pretty good. 
shouldn't say perfectly, it's like 90%. Well, the 10% of the app from Skywatcher that didn't work was the loading part and it would not load the app. <laughs> so I was a little bit disappointed in that because I thought it would be really great and that I might use the go-to and just like, you know, because I could put the laptop or it's, it's a Chromebook, it's kind of like a combination laptop tablet, uh, you know, on my kitchen table and just tell it to go to Jupiter um, and then go out and look at Jupiter and come in. And, you know, usually I do some other stuff or get some other eyepieces, got all my eyepieces inside and then go back out. And then I could tell it to go to Saturn. I thought that would be really slick. Um, so that didn't work. So I was a little bit disappointed in, in that portion. But like I said, primarily I'm not looking for, for the go-to functionality. Uh, but the hand controller on my phone anyway, like I have an older iPhone because um, I only go with like the free ones that you can get. So whatever the third or fourth oldest model is, those are the ones that I always have for like five or six years. So I don't know whether it's the, like how old my phone is. I know my phone does need an update or it didn't, it might've done the update last night, but it did need an update, but the buttons did not work very well at all on my iPhone. Um, I hear lots of people using tablets and setting a tablet up uh, on a pedestal next to it. To me, that is not like how I like to roll. Um, and like trying to hold the phone and futz with the buttons while looking at the planet, not fun. Well, especially as we get into the fall and some colder temperatures, it's just not a good solution. So you can buy... And again, this is one of those things where it's like a custom order from Skywatcher and there's, there's nobody in Canada apparently that sells it. There's nobody in the States. Apparently you can order direct from Skywatcher USA. And this just seems, and you, it's like a phone call and they send it to you. And then there's like this, this custom cable that you have to get and it's it it's impossible to figure out if they're going to send the cable with it or not. And I was like, oh, that's not good. And then there's a company in England that sells it and uh, uh, First Light Optics, which has a great reputation. I've never ordered from them, but I've been close a few times. But it was going to be like pretty much 260 to get it. I have no idea how long it's going to take something from England to arrive. And uh, there is an Orion version that's about... 40 bucks cheaper and i was like well all the orion gear like that is made by the same company the controller's the same the version's the same it looks exactly the same except it says orion instead of skywatcher on it and i was like and it's just coming from orion telescope and binoculars so that's going to be a lot easier to deal with if for some reason it doesn't work or whatever and they sell tons of those so i was like you know what i'm just going to go with that one so i ordered that as well Oh, cool. So, so that's coming. So, you know, very rapidly, this, this $500 uh, mount, um, you know, is, is now uh, an $800 mount pretty much. exactly. Wow. That, that grew quickly. <laughs> it, it did. It did. I kind of expected that. And there's still, there's still at least one modification uh, to do to it at least. Um, and, and the really neat thing about these is that you can do a lot of modifications to them. And, uh, and it did exactly what I wanted it to do out of the box. So I wouldn't spend extra money on a, on a device or anything that didn't do what I wanted to do. What I wanted it to do right from the beginning, as I've said, you can go back early episodes, because I, I don't really like to spend money that much and tend to be tighter with the dollar. <laughs> and some people who like to go to that auction site more frequently than I do. Um, <laughs> giving you a hard time. I wish yeah. I, I really wanted to buy something this week. So that's another story. But I, uh, I got that out and it works. So I don't mind putting a little bit of extra money into it um, to make sure that I can, I can do exactly what I want to do with it, which is just to be able to track the planets. Um, and as well, like I'm, I'm outfitting it so that I can even use it in manual mode which it doesn't, doesn't necessarily do uh, that well or not really recommended to do out of the box. Um, so it's going to be pretty good. But I did look up, oh, and you, the other part is a new uh, jaw for dovetails. And ADM makes aftermarket jaws for it. Mm -hmm. I thought the jaw was actually pretty good. So I haven't gone to that yet. But if I'm putting my 5-inch on it, I think it'll take the 5-inch no problem. 
Um, I want a heavier jaw. Like, in fact, there's no way I'm going to put my five inch on there. I think the hundred will be okay. Um, but I'm not putting my five inch on that with, with a little jaw that, that Skywatcher puts on. So that, that'll be another hundred dollars or so. So it's really going to be like a thousand dollar amount. So I went online. I'm like, okay, well, like what could I have gotten for a thousand dollars that will take a dozen pounds? And there's almost nothing really, unless you go used and, and for under a thousand dollars, you're looking at other mounts that are heavier, um, that have more complicated, uh, things going on and that some of them won't work manually at all and no way to modify them to work manually. So there might be some things out there somewhere you can buy something used, but, um, you know, it would, it would take more time and effort to, to try to figure that out. And I really like, I really like to work in, uh, in, uh, LDAS. That's my, that's my preferred mode of operating. So I like the fact that I could take this down uh, to the grasslands and set it up and track on a planet. And then I could switch off the electronics and just use it as, as an Altaz mount. And, right. and, yeah. and that's really probably how I'll observe with it. Like if I'm hunting stuff, I'll just use it as Altaz. And then when I want to track a planet, I'll, I'll engage the drives and track it. To me, that seems rather perfect. And to be honest, I might be able to get away just with using the AA batteries for a mm. season because yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, if I if I only do an hour or so of planetary observing a night um, when, when we're out at those sites, then I might get the, the better part of a season out of a set of batteries. And then if if I'm able to use an Altaz anyway and the batteries die, well, I'll just use an Altaz, which I prefer to, to do for 99% of my observing anyway. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it should be, Quite should be fine. Yeah. yeah, very versatile mount. And then you can you can even go online. If you Google like Skywatcher AZ-GTI and you can see like people have done all kinds of crazy mods to them and turn them into equatorial mounts or, or, you know, put the big jaws from ADM on them and then hung off a counterweight and put some people they've even put like, now one guy, I don't know. I, he said it was fine and he pushed it just to see what it would do, but he put a nine and a quarter inch, um, Celestron Schmitt-Cassegrain on it and just tried he said it was jittery but mostly because of the tripod huh. well that's quite a load yeah that's pretty impressive <laughs> all right <laughs> i've probably talked enough but it's, <laughs> this is like our longest podcast ever but uh, yep. Yep. anyway one of them has to be the longest exactly it was a good conversation <laughs> all right good stuff shane all right well thanks chris and thanks everybody for listening yeah thanks for for staying with us this long <laughs> yeah